0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. And I've been looking forward to this as have you, as if we've been going through the book of Revelation one chapter at a time. And that's the way John the Apostle Wrote it in 95, around there, 95 A.D. He was an old old man, old faithful saint, an apostle, the last of the Twelve Apostles. Probably the only apostle that wasn't murdered for his faith, for just simply being a Christian, for being obedient, preaching the gospel, and he was arrested for that. And then, put in hard labor on this island called the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea, And the Lord Jesus Christ literally appeared to him. Special appearance. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in resurrected glory, in a physical form, went to John and gave him the last of the information God wanted us to have before the Bible would be closed as a canon of sufficient spiritual truth for us. That's the book of Revelation. So the entire 22 chapters comes from the pen of John the Apostle. Maybe he had an assistant help write it down for him, and God has graciously preserved it for 2,000 years. And as we know, as we've been going through, the original intent and original audience of this letter of 22 chapters was uh, the churches of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. There were seven in particular real churches, probably churches that Paul or John was familiar with, maybe even some that he was a shepherd, pastor, elder, as well as an apostle familiar with these saints, but at the same time, knowing that they were under the persecution of unbelievers and even the government, so they were under duress, and some of them were being persecuted even physically, being imprisoned. And we know early on in Revelation, he mentions one person who was killed or murdered for being a Christian. And so these seven persecuted churches, Jesus wanted to encourage them, and he does it through John and through this very long letter revelation. So now now that John finishes the book, he's going to send messengers uh, of this book to these seven churches, these seven congregations. They would read them to their people, and they would be incredibly encouraged because these are words from Jesus, their Savior, their Lord in resurrected glory. And imagine that. They are persecuted churches, maybe in hiding, maybe in caves. We can't really relate. persecution to that level and degree, but it's going on right now in the world, if you're aware, if you're paying attention. Whether it's in North Korea, where there's an underground church in China, where the persecution towards Christians just continues to intensify week by week. This week I read about Christians in Ethiopia that were being slaughtered, murdered for their faith, all over the world, India, it's happening everywhere to that degree, to the same degree that was happening here. Some Christians live their entire lives under the microscope of the persecution of their local government or national government. We don't know what that's like here in America. The seven churches of Asia Minor knew what that was like. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he cares about his people. He cares about his children. He doesn't just abandon them. And so one of the ways he wanted to encourage them immediately 2,000 years ago, was with these letters. As you grow older, at least I've experienced this, as you grow older in this life, the, the trials and frustrations mount. And God uses those difficult circumstances in life, the hardships of life, the sadnesses of life, to help prepare us for our eternal home, which is heaven. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing with these persecuted saints. When you are under duress and under persecution and continually undergoing the hardships of life on a cursed earth, our only hope as Christians is in the future, really, in eternity. We're called as Christians actually to live in light of heaven, in light of the world to come. That's consistent all throughout the Bible. That was true of these seven persecuted churches. So in chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22, that's the culmination of the encouragement that Jesus is giving to these seven persecuted churches, reminding them, you know what? You're under hardship now. Some of you have been thrown into prison. One of your brothers has been executed for his faith. This won't continue forever. Persevere. Continue in the faith. Trust in Christ. Live in light of my coming. Live in light of the future. And that's what we do at communion which we'll have later, As we live in light of Christ's return. In communion, we think about what Christ did for us 2,000 years ago. He died for our sin. We also think about he's coming again to rescue us completely, fully, with full redemption, full glory. So I just want to encourage you. If you're a believer, you know Jesus Christ. You're having hardships in this life to whatever degree. And as you walk this life day by day, year by year, and it gets more and more difficult, and if your heart cries out, this is not my home, well, that rings true with Scripture. This is not our home. And as Christians, we need to live in light of the future. We need to live in light of Christ's coming. We need to live in light of eternity and in the light of heaven. And I'll remind you of this before I jump into Revelation 22, because Revelation 22 is just God's most detailed picture of what eternal heaven will be like. There were snippets of it all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout history. But it all coalesces and comes together in one grand, beautiful, splendorous picture in Revelation 21 and 22. So that's where we're going to land in just a second. But I want to remind us, as Christians, we need to live in light of the future and in light of eternity. This is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. Now, if I were to do a pop quiz, and I'm known for those... And if I were to ask you, because we've been studying Revelation, and if I were to ask you, okay, do you remember how many promises there were to the overcomer in chapters 2 and 3? Of course, you would say, yes. You'd say, seven. Good, I heard it out there somewhere. There are seven promises to the overcomer. And then if I were to ask you, well, what's an overcomer? You would say, well, that's just simply another name for a Christian. I'd say, amen. And then I'd say, do you remember the details and the contents of those seven promises to the overcomers? And many of you might say, no, I forgot Because that's easy to do. That was a long time ago that we read that. But another important thing about the seven promises to the seven overcomers, and if you're a Christian and you know Jesus, you're an overcomer. Overcomer means power. It's from Nike. Nike. If you know Jesus Christ, you're an overcomer. You have power, supernatural, divine power. You even have it right now with the Spirit of God who lives in you. Overcomer. Seven promises from Jesus to every Christian. And one of the most important things about those seven promises, the nature and the content of those seven promises, is you receive them when? Well, as an inheritance. What does that mean? Well, not in this life. But they are guaranteed to you. There are promises we receive in this life. So we're not getting shortchanged. How about the Holy Spirit living in you? The, tri- uh, the Holy Spirit, the triune God of the universe, living in you. There is no greater promise. There is no greater reality. But there are, there's more to come. And these seven promises of the overcomer that Jesus gave in Revelation 2 and 3, he was giving these to persecuted Christians who were living in a a cursed and fallen world who found it difficult to live day by day, crying out, is it even worth it, or when will we find relief? And Jesus' answer was, remember your seven promises, all of which are fulfilled in the next life, in heaven, in the millennium, and in the eternal state. And virtually all seven of these promises are given in detail in Revelation 21 and 22, which is where we'll be today. So that's probably one of the most important things to remember, is that these seven promises are fulfilled in the next life. It is yet to come. And that's incentive, that is motivation to carry on, to persevere, to pause and think, you know what, it's worth it. There's a greater crown and there's greater glory yet to come. That's worth it unbelievers the world they don't have that promise just how about a quick review i'll just read through them you listen carefully here's your promises they're to all of us promise number one promise to the overcomer to him who overcomes i will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god that's entrance and care that god will individually give you in the millennium carrying over into the eternal state eternal paradise that is yours it is guaranteed Overcomer promise number two, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. You will be spared the second death. You will not go into eternal hell. You will not be tormented, separated from God and His saints and the angels forever. You will be with God immediately in His presence, in glory, sinless, with Christ, with the Father and the Trinity, and all saints for all the ages, forever. What a promise. There is no greater promise. Overcomer promise number three, to him who overcomes I will grant I will give him the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the white stone, which no one knows except the one who receives the stone. You probably forgot what I said 20 weeks ago about that, or a year ago. So if you're a Christian, when you get to heaven, you get a white stone. It's got your individualized name on it that apparently Jesus wrote on it and only you and Jesus know that. Will there be secrets in heaven? Apparently this one, between you and God. That's individual care, individual attention. And by the way, that white stone, that is your entrance into heaven. And God himself gives it to you and to me. Then the next one, to him who overcomes, Jesus says, I will give authority. He says, I will give authority two times. When you get to heaven, you will have authority. If you're married, you will not be married to your spouse. Don't say anything in response to that question. But anyway, you will not be married to your spouse here on earth. There will be a different authority structure is my point. We will be married to Christ and he's going to delegate authority to every single one of us. And we will have different degrees of authority in heaven. As a matter of fact, Daniel says the authority in the kingdom will be given to the saints. And we, the saints will Rule, because that's the authority given to us, delegated to us by Jesus. So you will have authority given by Christ to wield for all eternity. And also, Jesus says he will give you the morning star. Who is, what's the morning star? Jesus himself, in his full glory. These, these promises are just too much. I can't handle I need to stop and pause. This is just too much to take. This is good stuff. This is what the Christian life is about. This is what reality is, is about. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 5, another promise to the overcomer. Uh, The overcomer in heaven, in the future, in the life to come, will be clothed in white garments. What is that? Forgiveness of sin. All of your sin. That's purity. Purity. We will exist in the eternal state in absolute purity and perfection. Clothed in white, uh, white garments. And I will not erase your name from the book of life. You have eternal life. You have it forever. It is absolutely secure. So that's security. So we have purity and security in this one promise. He doesn't stop. He goes on. Not only that, when you get to heaven and Jesus gives you that white stone that allows you to get in, it's not a passport with a COVID identification that you've had the uh, COVID test. It's No, you have the white stone from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and you are allowed to enter into heaven. And when you do, listen to this promise. Jesus says, I will confess your name. I will proclaim your name. I will announce your name. I will scream out your name before my Father and before his angels. When you get to the heaven's door. And now the royal, whoever, and then fill in your name. That's incredible. You'll be like a dignitary entering into heaven. And also your identity will be preserved. Your individual will identify by name. Jesus is announcing your name as you enter into heaven. As a dignitary. Everybody pay attention. Hey, Gabriel over quit talking to Michael and pay attention. I am about to announce Cliff McManus as he's coming into heaven. Yeah, I know he was a sinner. Hey, stop. I don't know if that's what's gonna happen, but anyway. I'm just I'm dreaming. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In that one promise, purity, security, dignity. It's loaded. Two more. Chapter 3, the one who overcomes every Christian in the future in heaven, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What is a pillar? That's permanence, unmovable, solid foundation. You will not get kicked out. You will not be arrested, you will not be taken away. No one can tell you you don't belong here. A pillar. And a pillar isn't just providing security and stability, it's a significant structure that's a part of that building. It is significant, that's significance. And also the pillar is in close proximity with the temple, which is the presence of God. So that's also accessibility. Permanent accessibility to the very presence of God, which we are isolated from right now. We don't have the immediate physical presence of Jesus In the future, we will. Not only that, I will write on him or her the name of my God and the name of the city of my God when we get to heaven. What's that? That's personal possession. When God writes his name, so it's protection, it's sealing, but it's also personal. We become Jesus' personal eternal property. He owns us. And then the last one, for an overcomer in the future, in heaven, Jesus says, I will grant to you to sit down with me. This is just Jesus. I will let you sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. There's joint rule in the future by Jesus and the Father. We'll see that in Revelation 22 because it talks about God on his throne in eternal heaven in the New Jerusalem. And the Lamb. That means the Lamb is sitting with the Father on the throne. Don't forget this promise when we get to Revelation 22. That's why I wanted to read it. You also, as a Christian, will be allowed to sit on Jesus' throne and the Father's throne. How does the Lord Jesus and God the Father fit millions of people on the throne? I have no idea, but He's God and it's going to happen. Glorious. You will not be insignificant when you are in heaven. If you feel insignificant now, and that's a common thought about yourself, but you're a true believer, it's okay. That's typical of this cursed earth and this cursed life. That will not be true in the eternal state. So now let's go to the, see about the rest of the glories in heaven that we began with last week in Revelation 22. And open up to Revelation Chapter 22, and we'll just go through verses 1 through 21 with that background, kind of creating an appetite of the glories of eternal heaven. So John's shown us in the book of Revelation the chronology of world history. He told us very clearly of how the world, how human history is going to end. Hey, did you read the news this week? Top headline about that new best-selling book on Amazon and the New York Times this week. Number one bestseller. Well, maybe some of you don't read the news. Well, I'll tell you about it. So it's Bill Gates, one of the richest guys in the world. He wrote a book, and it's now the bestseller. And in it, it's amazing. He tells us how the world is going to end. He literally tells us a plan of how to, quote, save the world. Amen. Man, that is such a relief. (laughs) Bestseller right now. He was on TV all over the place. People are interviewing, literally asking him, so how are we going to save the world? And he had all the answers. He wrote a book. $39.99, Thirty-nine ninety-nine. 99 it's yours, five days from Amazon. And that's, I am not exaggerating. It's about the prospect, of how the world is going to end. How we can save the world with his plan. God was not mentioned. Jesus was not mentioned. The book of Revelation hasn't been mentioned. He talks a lot about the weather, because that's the theme of the book. What's going to destroy the world is, is bad weather that we are creating as humans. When we've already seen a lot about the true weather, man, in Revelation, right? We've learned that God is the weatherman and his angels are in charge of the weather. Remember the six, seven bowls of judgment in Revelation 17, 16? And we saw that a lot of those future judgments that are yet to come are around the weather. And it's not from carbon dioxide, it is from God Almighty from heaven. He is in charge, his angels are in charge. It's according to his plan. Jesus oversees it, it happens exactly when he wants it, wants it to happen. And part of that weather is the 120-pound hailstones being thrown down from heaven by God, the only weatherman. And that is yet to come. There is no stopping. it. But I was just wondering if you had seen that book. But anyway, I was distracted. Let's go back now to the truth about the future, the truth about how the world can be saved, the truth about the only person who can save the world, and how you can be saved from the wrath to come if you don't already know Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that in Revelation 22. Once again, it just, 21 and 22 go together. You can't really separate them. Actually, chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22 all go together. Uh, The coming of Christ, the millennium for a thousand years, Christ is victorious, and then he hands everything over to God the Father, and then that transitions into the new heaven and new earth, which is the eternal state that goes on forever and ever and ever, in glory, without sin, beautiful picture, and then we saw the details of the eternal state in heaven that is yet to come. Remember Revelation 21 and 22 isn't describing life now. It isn't describing the church now. It is yet future. It hasn't happened yet. And the main thing in Revelation 21 regarding the new heaven and the new earth was the capital city. There will be a capital city in heaven, in eternal heaven. And from John's perspective, as he looked back, it just looked like this beautiful, a glistening, splendorous, blinding, pure diamond. That's what it looks like from long range. And then he looks even closer, and then there's the throne of God, and God himself looks like a pure diamond. And then there's these streets of gold, and they are also pure and glistening, refracting the glorious, eternal light of the infinite, almighty God. That's the picture. So, the main thing to remember from Revelation 21, what is heaven going to be like? Well, there's the eternal city that is absolutely splendorous and majestic. And inside the city is the throne of God and the Lamb himself. Shining in all their really unrestricted glory. And the saints of the ages, we have access to the heavenly city. And then now John transitions into chapter 2, and this is just a continuation of chapter 21. He's going to give us more detail about the eternal city and what eternal heaven will be like, our future home. It's just a narrative passage, but I just broke it up into three main points as we just walk through the narrative, maybe to help us think it through in terms of main themes. So chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, is the revelation. The unveiling, that's what revelation means, the unveiling. In other words, more information and detail about what heaven will be like, the eternal state, the the new city, the new Jerusalem, where we will get to live and reside. So it's the revelation by the angel who's talking to John, and he's showing John these visions, but he's also explaining the visions to John. Oh, there's the tree of life, and here's what the tree of life means. There's the tree of life, John, and here's what it does. It produces 12 different fruits continually. So that's what the angel is doing, giving us this revelation. That's verses 1 through 5. After the revelation from the angel is the validation. So revelation and validation, and that's the validation of John himself. He doesn't speak individually much throughout the book of Revelation, but here he does. And that's verses 6 through 11. We just hear some firsthand testimony from John as he's wrapping up the revelation, wrapping up his book. And the validation is he's validating that what I saw is true, what I have written is true. And then after the validation, it concludes, appropriately so, verses 20 to 21, is the invitation. The invitation by Jesus. Most of what is spoken in 12 through 21 is by Jesus himself. If you have a red-letter Bible, you probably don't have all red letters in 12 through 21, but you should. At a minimum, 12 to 20 probably should be all red. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking from the context. So let's go ahead and look at this. The revelation given by the angel, the validation, these things are true from John, and then the invitation given by the Lord Jesus. Always God giving an invitation to sinners. It's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late until it is too late. It's that constant calling and wooing and brokenheartedness over the, the lostness of sinners who don't believe. Let's go ahead and look at the first five verses and just walk through those this glorious picture of eternal heaven, the new Jerusalem. Then this angel who's been giving John this tour and explaining his revelations, the angel showed me a river of the water of life. He showed me a river. So remember, there's no sea, human water, but there is something that looks like water in the eternal state. It's probably not H2O chemicals that we are aware of, but it is described by Jesus, and the angel is water, It looks like water. It's flowing, it's alive, it's bubbling, it's streaming. Is it water? Yes, but it's a heavenly water, a supernatural water, a divine water, a water created directly by God and preserved forever by God. It's a water we've never known and can't experience. The best John can do is try to describe it in terms that we can relate to, but qualitatively it's completely and totally different than any water we have and have ever been aware of or known. And the emphasis here is water, and all that water represents to the Bible, water usually represents cleansing and life. And that's how Jesus used it in John 7. Whoever hungers, whoever thirsts, let him come to the, the waters, the water of life. And what Jesus meant there in John 7 is, by water was life cleansing and life in the Spirit of God who could give eternal life and salvation. And that's consistent all throughout the Bible. And provision, that's also the picture here. Whatever this is, this literal water, it's God's ongoing, regular, continual, eternal care and provision for us of all that we need. We will still be in physical bodies. We're not phantoms, we're not ghosts, we're not spirits. We're in physical bodies. And we're enjoying these things that are called the water of life. The emphasis there is on life. Supernatural life, eternal life, heavenly life. The fullness of life, which we've never experienced in this life. There's a river. It's the water of life. It's it's clear as crystal. It, It is pure as a diamond. Think of the purest diamond there is, and that's what distinguishes this river as John's looking at it. He's never seen anything like it. Every river that he was aware of on planet Earth, it was at best... Spotted and murky and filled with stuff. Not this. Completely, perfectly pure. Which speaks of the purity of heaven. So uh, there will be a water of life, clear as a diamond, clear as crystal, coming down. Notice its origin. It's coming down. Literally, the origin of this is from God himself. So it's life-giving, continual, pure. Bubbling down, cascading all throughout this glorious city, Don't think of a small river. Think of a massive, glorious, rushing, overwhelming, conspicuous, divine river from God. Because that's what it is. Coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So there's God the Father. There's Jesus Christ. And there's this life-giving, supernatural river. Replenishing the saints for all eternity. It's in the middle of the street. So it's a focal point. It's one of the first things you see in the city. As you go in, it's in the middle of the street. And on either side of the water of life is the tree of life. This is not just one tree. This is a plurality of trees. And these trees just line the river of life. Who knows for miles and miles and miles is the tree of life. The tree of life. It's a a generic plural is what it's called. So that's the main tree that will be there in the eternal state. The tree of life And it is on the side of this river. In the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding their fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, John's just trying to describe this in a vision. The tree of life. We saw a tree of life in the first paradise in the Garden of Eden. That was a physical tree, a literal tree, a real tree that could be eaten from. And then God banished Adam and Eve from that so they would not eat it and be preserved in their sin forever. We don't know where that first tree of life went. Now there's an eternal tree of life. It's a parallel. I don't think it's the same tree. I think it's a greater tree. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about everything right now in this life is of a different nature than that which is in the next life. Everything in the next life is of a higher quality in terms of its nature, ontological reality, big word, that speaks of the being, essence, and nature of something. So it's not just, oh, we're going back to the Garden of Eden. No, we're not. The Garden of Eden had deficiencies and vulnerabilities. This is perfection, impervious to anything that can undermine it. And it will be preserved for eternity. So this is a tree of life. It's the greatest tree of life. And it's, many, it's a forest of trees of life. And notice, it has all kinds of a diversity of fruits. And the fact that it says month to month just means ongoing, regular, seasonal, continual provision for God's people. Unlike the orange tree you might have in your backyard that maybe it produces oranges two times a year, and it has many, the majority of months where it's dormant. And then the few of you who don't even like oranges anyway, and you think, oh, what a waste anyway. Not so here. A variety, a diversity, a provision for his people to satisfy everyone and continually, 24-7. He's already told us there's no sun, moon, light. In the New Jerusalem, it's, it's open all the time. There's access all the time. So this is God's ongoing regular provision and care for his people. The water of life coupled with the, the tree of life, yielding its fruit every month. And then the, it's got leaves that are supernatural. John, does the best he can do is the leaves are for the hea- healing of the nations. Literally, for the thera- therapeutic is the word. The comfort, the replenishing, the preservation. You're not going to get sick in heaven or eternal heaven. This is, again, just God's individual attention and care for you. They will be therapeutic. Everything in heaven will be therapeutic, but these in particular leaves of this tree, and they were for the healing, not of the nations. Ethnos, ethnicity, ethnos is the Greek word, ethnos. Most of the time in your New Testament, it's just simply translated as Gentiles. And sometimes just the peoples, plural. That's what it means. It's for the Gentiles or for the people who are in heaven. It's for everyone. And there will no longer be any curse. That's a sermon in itself. That happened in Genesis chapter 3 with sin. God cursed the earth down to the very plants. That's why we have thorns and thistles and weeds. That's why we have deserts and famine and earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and Fires and everything else with respect to nature. It's from the curse. Not from global warming or climate change. It's from the curse. It's clear from scripture. That will be removed. So one thing the curse means? Perfect weather. All the time. Not one defect. Can't even imagine it. Little on all the other things that fall under the curse, completely removed. Remember, uh, chapter 21, we mentioned no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning, no more. That's all a result of the curse. No more sin, no more death. Death is the ultimate result of the curse. Gone. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. That's Jesus Christ and the Father. That's the best news of all. And his slaves, literally, his slaves will serve him. Who are his slaves? That's us. On the one hand, we're overcomers. At the same time, we are slaves. What are we doing in heaven? Serving. That sounds boring. It won't be. Are you bored in this life? Right now? Well, if you're not bored in this life, that life's going to be way better. Hello? If you're a Christian, what are you doing in this life? Serving. That's priority number one. Serving Him. We're just going to be doing the same thing at a higher degree, greater level, level to our ultimate potential for God's glory in His immediate presence. What could be better than that? Serving, that's the only verb. It's the main verb. And there's countless, infinite ways that we can serve. And we'll be serving in all kinds of different ways. We're serving with authority. We're serving with delegated authority over the nations, over the peoples. Incredible responsibilities. There's a lot of detail there. God didn't want to overwhelm John by giving him too much detail, probably. What are we going to be doing? Serving. Obey. Obey. God's perfect, He knows everything, and He'll just continually be telling us what to do for all eternity. We will not get bored. And you know, we will enjoy every single minute of it. Have you ever worked for a bad boss? I'm not gonna ask my staff that this Tuesday, but anyway, uh, have you ever worked for a bad boy I have? Whew! Uh, Life is miserable. When you have a lousy boss who is just mean, lacking patience, unrealistic, demanding, unfair, doesn't recognize the good that you do, it can just make your life. But you got to serve him or her. Have you ever had a good boss? Oh man, what a difference. Well, Jesus, he's the, and the Father, they're the perfect boss. What do we do when we get to heaven? Serve. We obey. Who? The Father and the Lamb. And they are the best masters ever. Perfect. We will thoroughly enjoy it thoroughly be satisfied. Unimaginable. They will, get this, not only will we get to serve him, we will get to see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. He owns us. We'll get to see God's glory, see his presence. God the Father does not have a body. Jesus does, right now, a glorified body. Jesus will still be in his physical glorified body and still be almighty, infinite God somehow as the son of man we don't know how that, but that's true and god the father doesn't have a body no man can see god he's infinite but somehow we'll see the full manifestation of god the father's glory in his resplendent attributes being made visible immediately in our presence that's called his glory in a way that we can't ever in this life and his name will be on their foreheads and they will no longer be there will no longer be any night there will they will have no need of the light Of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign. There it is. They will reign. If serving sounds boring, how about this? You will reign or rule with authority forever and ever. You will reign forever and ever. And it's just glorious all the time. Light, there is no darkness. So that is the revelation of this beautiful, eternal, heavenly city. This is real. This is real stuff. Some of you might be thinking, or people might be listening in, who don't really embrace uh, biblical truth. They might think, that, oh, this is just a fantasy. I can't believe those Christians who believe that. And that's why we have verse 6. Let's go on to verses 6 through 11. Now John speaking up with the angel. Uh, and the angel says to John, these words are faithful and true. This is the same thing that was repeated earlier when we talked about this. These things are faithful and true. Uh, He's said it a couple of times now because he has to take a pause and and let John know. These things are faithful and true. You You can believe this. I know this is so unlike anything you've ever experienced, John, in this life or what this fallen, cursed world is, but these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must. It's a divine necessity. It will come to pass. It will come to pass when? Soon. Meaning immediately. It will happen immediately on God's timetable when it's time for that to happen. There's a sequen, sequence of events we know from Scripture that have to happen chronologically in world history. God has told us that. Jesus told us that. Don't don't be worrying about the end of the age. He told his apostles, there's other things that need to happen in the meantime. Like what? The gospel has to go out to the whole world. The times of the Gentiles must be Run its course and be fulfilled. Uh, A certain amount of Gentiles need to be saved. These are all in the Bible. So there's a sequence. The rapture has to happen at some point. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. All these things have to happen. And then in their proper order, we aren't concerned with the time. God's prophets were never concerned with the time. God said, no, just trust me. But these words are true. God knows what He's doing. Every event in history is happening exactly the way it's supposed to happen and when it's supposed to happen. But when it does, some of the stuff will just be immediately, just invading world history, invading human agendas at God's discretion. Verse 7, and behold, there's an interruption here. I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming immediately. So when the Lord Jesus does come, He comes immediately. He comes unexpectedly. That's what it means. The emphasis isn't on chronological time of telling us when this is and we can figure out the dates and, oh, He's coming in 1984, based on my calc- No. No one knows the day or the hour in this life. But when He does come, it's unexpectedly. It is immediate. It is quick. And everything is in keeping with what has been revealed. That's what He means. Blessed is the One. So it's this idea of imminence. I could come at any time which is a warning to unbelievers and motivation for believers. Occupy till I come. Be busy till I come. Be faithful till I come. Be a good steward until I come. Which is uh, Pastor Derek's recent sermon. Be a faithful steward. Blessed is the one who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Listen to it. Obey it. You'll be blessed if you do. By the way, he says the prophecy of this book. He says that twice in this chapter. This is a prophecy. He says it in that verse. Uh, he'll say it later as we're concluding, uh, verse 18, it's a prophecy. Verse 19, it's a prophecy. Three times right there, he says, Revelation, the apocalypse, is a, is a prophecy. Chapter 1, he said the same thing. It's a prophecy. If you were to ask me, what is the genre of the book of Revelation? I would say it's a prophecy. I wouldn't say it's apocalyptic. It's prophecy. I wouldn't say it's poetry. It's prophecy. What is prophecy? That's divine revelation from God. It's prophecy. Uh, Peter told us this in 2 Peter chapter 3. That all of Scripture is called prophecy. That's the main genre of Scripture. It's divine revelation from God. It wasn't made up by human beings is what it means. Prophecy is synonymous with special revelation directly from God. And then Peter goes on to say in 2 Peter chapter 1 that no prophet, whoever wrote down Scripture, wrote down according to his own will or his own desires. But what he wrote down were the very words of God, as he was moved along or carried along by the Spirit of God. And he wrote down exactly what the Spirit of God wanted him to write. So anything written down by the apostles, we can trust it. It is the very words of God. That's what Peter said. So it doesn't matter if Jesus said it, Paul said it, Peter said it. If it's written down, thus saith the Lord, it is prophetic. It is divine revelation. It is without error. It is binding. That is prophecy. And this book is prophecy. It's the word of God. And then verse 8, I, John, he's given an eyewitness testimony. He's validating these things are true. I am the one who heard and saw. I bear witness of these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down. So he is overwhelmed at all of this. This is the second, what, the second time now? John is overwhelmed. And then he falls down. And it said, to worship at the feet of the angel. And he begins to worship the angel. This happened earlier. Uh, was it chapter 19? He falls down, uh, verse 9, and he, verse 10 says, he fell down to worship the angel. And the angel says the exact same thing two times. When John falls down to worship the angel, the angel says to me, do not do that. I love that. Do not do You know, sometimes in your biblical counseling with other believers, this needs to be the approach. There's a time for listening and sympathizing and working it through, and taking your time, and then there are other times where you just do the angelic approach. Don't do that. Let's literally say, stop it. Stop it. And that was appropriate. So he does the same thing in chapter 22, verse 9. And the angel said to me, do not do that. It's the same thing. Stop it. Knock it off. Quit it. What are you doing? Quit it. Get up. Stop worshiping me. He doesn't just say what not to do. He says, he gives an explanation and reason why, which we should do in our biblical counseling. We don't just say, stop it, knock it off. The Bible says don't do that. Well, where in the Bible does it say not to do that? And why does it say in the Bible? Where, give us an, and that's what the angel does. Don't do that because I am a fellow slave of yours. I don't deserve any worship. I worship God just like you worship God. We don't worship angels. We don't pray to angels. They're created beings. They're creatures. I'm a fellow, we're going to rule over the angels, as a matter of fact. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets. And the prophets, we don't worship them either. They're just like people, they're not perfect. They were sinful, they were not made of marble. And of those who heed the words of the book. And then, and then he tells them what to do. So don't do this, do this. That's, that's what Paul did in the, in the epistles as he's counseling Christians, don't do that, but do this. Stop doing that, start doing this. Put this off, put this on. Put that off, put that on. Put that bad habit off of talking that way to your spouse and start talking kindly to your spouse like Proverbs 15.1 says. Put it off. Colossians 3. Stop being harsh with your children and start talking a different way to your children. Very common of Paul to do that in every area of life. Put this off. Put that on. And here's what the angel does. Don't do that, and instead worship God. Very simple, straightforward, beautiful. Verse 10, and then the angel said to me, do not seal up like Daniel was told to to do. Seal up information about the future. But now is the time for all revelation. It's all coming out. It all needs to be written down. This is the finality. This is the last book of the Bible. This summarizes and fills up all of everything God wanted to say to his church, to his people. Uh, Do not seal it up. Don't hide these words. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still be righteous still. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What is that all about? That's just a pronouncement from God's point of view that whatever your last breath is in this life of your attitude towards Jesus Christ, whether rejection or you bowed the knee to him, that will be preserved forever in the next life for eternity. There's no chance of salvation in the next life. That's all it says. If you were a rebel and you rejected God in this life, you will be a rebel rejecting God for all eternity in the next life. If you bowed the knee to Christ in this life, then you will be righteous forever in the next life. That's all that means. So that's the validation from John himself. These things are true. And then let's close with the invitation from Jesus himself. Always the gracious, blessed Savior. Remember this when Jesus was on the cross? He never did anything. He was not a criminal. He was innocent. He was sinless. He came to die. He wasn't a helpless victim. He was on the cross because that was his plan. And he's being crucified on the cross publicly. Public shame. A public curse condemned for all to see, hanging there for six hours. He just went through six kangaroo courts of mock trials that were rigged. When Pilate said, what, three times? I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find he is not guilty from the highest authority in the land was the official verdict that was given. Nevertheless, he is still executed as a criminal. Complete unrighteousness. Complete perversion, prostitution of justice. And Jesus welcomed it. That was the plan. He's hanging on the cross for six hours. Dying while he's on the cross. And there's and he's crucified between those two criminals who deserve the death penalty. On the right and on the left. One of them, over the course of the six hours, comes to realize who Jesus is. How? Because of some of the things that Jesus said while on the cross. And some of the things that were being said to him from below. And one of the criminals was convicted to the core of sin and overwhelmed. And in the eleventh hour, pleading to Jesus, the Savior, Lord, remember me. Remember me. In paradise and Jesus turned to him and said truly I say to you, you can count on it. Jesus who could read his mind, know his heart maybe never met this sinner before knows that this criminal on the cross deserves to die nevertheless in grace at the last minute, enduring unjust condemnation from a hateful world puts his own interest, pain and suffering aside, focusing attention on this Sinner who deserves to die. Pleading out for forgiveness, and Jesus granted that forgiveness. That's the heart of Christ. Truly I say to you, this day you will be with me. That's heaven. What's heaven? Being in the immediate presence of God. This day you will be with me in paradise. That's amazing grace. Remember the Roman soldier who was also there at the foot of the cross after hours of going by? It could have been one of the Roman soldiers that pounded the nail in Jesus' hands and feet, for all we know, watching from a distance, hearing all the interaction, seeing the grace of Jesus Christ he'd never seen before, his patience, his mercy, his goodness, the words that flowed from his lips, his trust of the Father throughout, quoting Old Testament scriptures. The blessed Savior and one of those Roman soldiers was overwhelmed and declared at the last minute, this must be the Son of God. This must be the Son of God. That's That Roman soldier, probably in heaven. And then the greatest act of mercy and grace on the part of Jesus was the same fickle mob who just a couple days before, or that same day actually, screaming out for his blood before the trial, the trial of Pilate. Crucify him! Crucify! And by, that was five days after waving palm branches. Hosanna in the highest! Come save us, Jesus! You're the Son of David! Same people. They turn their waving palm into a clenched fist. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We want his blood. May may his blood be on our children for generations. That's what they said. May God curse us and all of our descendants. We want his blood. That's the same crowd that on the cross Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. That's the heart of Christ. You see it here. His last invitation to sinners. In light of everything that John has given, in light of the first 22 chapters, with the greatest emphasis being on the wrath of God yet to come on earth dwellers, because they deserve it. Nevertheless, the grace of God is always available to the last minute. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every person according to what he has done. Jesus is coming, he's coming with rewards. He remembers everything. God the Father knows everything. He's on a mission when he returns. Part of what he's going to do is he's going to judge every soul, every person. Every one of us has to stand before the throne of God, the throne of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, the book of Romans says the same thing, 1 Corinthians says the same thing. It's very specific, it's very explicit. It's called the Bema judgment. It's just a judgment seat. That's where Pilate was sitting on a Bema judgment by the way, making rulings. He had authority He rendered a verdict, not guilty. Herod sat on a a bama. Festus, the governor, sat on a bama. Galileo in Acts 18, before Paul, sat on a bama. It's just a judgment seat, the right to rule, to make decisions. And Jesus Christ, the rightful king, will sit on a judgment throne, and he will make decisions about every single one of us. And he will render verdicts. If you read Romans, and in particular, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Every single one of us has to face God and we are accountable to Him for everything we have done in the body whether good or worthless is what it says. If good, if honoring Christ then we will be rewarded accordingly. His reward is with me. Believers will be rewarded in heaven. We will not be punished for our sin in heaven. But if there was anything we did down on earth that was not pleasing to the Father it will be burned up. There will be some shame, but reward, glory, privilege, every single one of us. Now the reward for unbelievers is based on their works and the fact they rejected Christ and they're condemned and consigned to eternal hell forever to different degrees of punishment, according to the book of Luke. Horrible. Horrible. That's, that's motivation for life. Jesus is coming again and he's going to evaluate every single one of us. I am the Alpha and the... He has the right to do it because he's the Eternal One. He began all things. He consummates all things. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's Jesus. I pointed out in Isaiah that those are titles used only of Yahweh Almighty God. Now Jesus is saying the same thing. I am Almighty Eternal God with the Father. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right to the tree of life, may enter by the gates of the city. Blessed are those who believe in the gospel of Christ and are saved. Have their sins forgiven. Outside of heaven are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices life. They love sin. That's the point. They're unbelievers. Unbelievers are not allowed into heaven. Dogs. The first word there. Term of derision. Dogs. They don't. Did you know? Filthy, dirty dogs that run amok out in the Orient and historically where John lived, the dogs just roamed like raving wild animals in the garbage heaps and down the streets and they didn't have an owner and they weren't domesticated and they were filthy and they were disgusting and at times dangerous. They were not worried about their reputations. You know that? And that's what he's talking about here. That's the stigma. They're engrossed in sin and they could care less. They're not worried about the rib. They have no guilt. Seared conscience. That's a dog. And Jesus says in verse 16, I, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, plural, not just John, these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the rightful king, according to Old Testament scripture. The bright morning star, the shining one, the glorious one, the perfect one. The spirit and the bride say, Come, come, Lord Jesus. The bride is the church. That's our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. That means come, Lord Jesus. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come to the water of life. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. What's that? Well, you give your life to Christ by believing. God, I'm a sinner. Save me. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, the God-man who died on the cross for my sin and absorbed the wrath of the Father. Save me. I repent. Adopt me into your family. You believe it by faith, and God grants it by grace. Take the water of life, verse 18, and I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to any of these words, if you add to scripture, then God will add to you the plagues or punishment, wrath from God. Don't tamper with his word, which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from, subtracts from God's word, you read something in the Bible, oh, that's not true. Oh, that's not going to happen. Oh, it doesn't mean that. That's taking away from the Bible, by the way. No, it doesn't really mean that. Well, actually, it does. Don't subtract, undermine its truth. Very dangerous. Because if you do, God will take away your part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Maranatha. Come. Come. Lord Jesus. And look at how this is so appropriate to the heart of God, of how the last verse and statement and reminder in the Bible isn't you're a sinner, you're pathetic, God's mad at you. It's just the opposite. The grace, there it is, undeserved favor from God because He is good. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all and all God's people said Amen. How glorious heaven will be. Let's pray before we have communion. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Thank you for your grace, the gospel, the message about the saving work of Jesus Christ, coming down to earth, becoming a, a human, the perfect human, while remaining. God and the God-man with the sole mission of dying on the cross to be punished for sinners and to absorb God's holy wrath as their substitute and then being buried and rising again from the dead. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you ascended back into heaven where you came from. You reign from on high as the King of kings and Lord of lords and have sent your spirit, your word, and your people to call and to woo sinners to repentance, so that they also may know eternal life and security in you. And God, thank you for this blessed, detailed reminder of what our home is like in the future. We are citizens of heaven. The best is yet to come. Help us, through your grace, persevere through this cursed life, trusting you every step of the way. And we just thank you for your word. We pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.